Our God and Father, we pray that you will open our hearts this morning, open our minds to understand what you have to teach us through your word. In Christ's name, amen. What do you think of when you see a street corner preacher of doom? One of those guys marching around with a sign that says, Repent, the end of the world is at hand. Do you feel embarrassed? You kind of hope that he won't see you and point out to you and say, Hey, mister, are you prepared to meet your God? You're afraid that maybe one of your friends or neighbors might see you. You're embarrassed over this guy and don't want to be associated with him or identified with have your Christianity identified with his type of Christianity. So maybe you pull your collar up and kind of bow your head and look the other way and walk swiftly past him. Or maybe you feel pity. You see this fellow out there preaching. You certainly admire his courage, but you notice that his clothes are kind of threadbare. And you imagine that he's probably supporting himself in a part-time job, doing some kind of menial task. And you think, what a pity. I mean, with his courage, he could really make it in the business world. And you can serve God there too. Why, well, he's probably not going to have a nice, comfortable retirement like me. He probably doesn't own his own home, but just lives in some cheap apartment. And his kids probably don't get to take ballet lessons and join the soccer club and have a horse like my kids. It's too bad he's wasting his time like this. Or maybe when you see the street corner preacher of doom, you just plain feel relief. And you mutter to yourself, thank God that I haven't been called to do that. That's probably how most of us respond. But I think we all have been called to be like the street corner preacher in certain respects. Now, God doesn't call most of us to live that type of life and spend our time out in the street corner preaching. But he does call all of us to have the same courage that that man has. To have the courage to be different to do what God calls us to do, even if we look like weirdos to all of our friends and neighbors, to have the courage to want to honor God and seek his things and seek to serve the real needs of people above being respectable to men. He calls us all to have the same courage to value lasting eternal things rather than overvaluing the, te the temporary passing securities of this age. We're going to look this morning at the life of a street corner preacher, a prophet of doom that you're all familiar with, and his name is Noah. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 6. 2 Peter 2.5 says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And apparently while he was working on the ark, he preached repentance and doom to those passing by, to those who came to Gok and look at him and this funny thing he was doing. He apparently preached to them and called them to repent and warned, the end of the world is at hand. God is going to destroy the world. Repent and turn to righteousness and come join us. And Noah is held forth for us as an example in Scripture. In this chapter, we see him as an example of one who had the courage of the street corner preacher. He had the courage to be different. He had the courage even to look foolish and silly to all of his friends. He had the courage, he had courage to be different in two basic ways, as we'll see in this chapter. First of all, in verses 1 to 12, we see that he had the courage to be different and that he wasn't sucked into conforming to the corruption of his age. He didn't follow their pattern of living. 
We see that he had the courage to different secondly in verses 13 to 22, and that he let his lifestyle be dictated by what God told him about the future. He wasn't simply living for the passing pleasures of the present. God had warned him that the world was going to be judged, and Noah's whole lifestyle was ordered according to that warning, as we will see. Let's look first of all at the first four verses. The first several verses of the chapter describe the society in which Noah lived, a very corrupt one, and one that beckoned him to join them in their pursuits. Now it came about when men began to multiply in the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Now these verses are notoriously difficult to interpret, and I'm not exactly sure what they mean. There are two basic interpretations that people take of them. Some suggest that these verses describe the intermarriage of the two lines of men, the followers of Cain, the Cainites, who were described in chapter 4, the followers of Seth, the Sethites. Seth was a righteous man, and his some of his descendants apparently were, and, and possibly all of them. And they, according to this interpretation, are referred to here as the sons of God. Cain, on the other hand, was an ungodly man, and his descendants were ungodly. And according to this interpretation, they're referred here, to here as the daughters of men. And what we have here is the sons of God, the righteous uh, line, sacrificing righteousness for the beauty of the ungodly women, the daughters of Cain giving up their uh, purity and their relationship with God and going after temporary pleasures of beauty in the women. The other basic interpretation of this is that these verses describe the intermarriage of uh, fallen angels with women of, uh, of the earth. It's a rather strange uh, conception to us this interpretation is supported by the fact that the term sons of God is only used in the Old Testament, elsewhere, of angels. Of course, demons would be fallen angels. Support of this interpretation also is the fact that 2 Peter 2 does mention the judgment on fallen angels, the judgment on the uh, people by the flood in Noah's day, and the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, all in one sentence, which would seem to imply that he got uh, that Peter got all three of these stories from uh, close proximity in the in the book of Judges, in the book of Genesis. According to this interpretation, then, the offspring spoken of in verse 4, uh, the mighty men of old, the men of renown, may supply some real background to uh, many pagan myths. Because you know in the mythology of Greek and Roman world and and uh, some of the Babylonian world and elsewhere, you had many stories of the gods coming and having sexual relationships with human beings. And of course, if this is the correct interpretation of this passage, these 
Heavenly beings weren't gods, but were, de were demons, dressing themselves as angels of light and coming and having affairs with human beings. And the offspring then may have been mighty men like Hercules, who had superhuman strength because he was superhuman. Well, we don't know for sure what the correct interpretation of this difficult passage is, but the main point is very clear, namely that mankind had corrupted itself thoroughly on the earth. And verse 3 gives God's response to this. He says, My spirit will not strive forever, forever because man also is flesh. Now, it's not wrong to be flesh in the sense of having a body, but this description is one that means man was orienting his whole life around the flesh, around the pursuit of sensual pleasures rather than seeking after spiritual values. We would imagine that God would say then, therefore, instantly, I'm going to put an end to mankind. But the rest of verse 3 indicates something different. Though man is ripe for judgment, nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. Apparently what he's saying here is that though man is ripe for judgment, yet I'm going to wait 120 years to give man a chance to repent. Now, some interpret this 120 years to be a shortening of the length of man's life because in the chapters before this, people lived several hundreds of years. And now the lifetime of man is more like 100 or 120. And this would indicate, if this is what he's saying, it would indicate that God is sick of man living so long and being able to become so thoroughgoing in his corruption have so much time to develop new forms of iniquity that he shortens man's life. But in the context here, he seems to be saying, as he goes on, that he's going to judge the world. He's going to put an end to mankind. And yet there is a, a limit set, a time of repentance, a time of patience. And we see something here of the character of God. He's a holy God, a just and righteous God, and he will judge sin, but he doesn't relish doing so. He takes no delight in the death of the wicked, as Ezekiel tells us. But rather, he's kind and patient and merciful, and he wants to hold off, giving man a chance to repent and turn from his iniquity. And so he says, I'll give man 120 years within which to repent. I'll give him one last chance. And the last chance will be long and drawn out to give everybody lots of last chances. And then verses 5 to 7 further describe the corruption of the world. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. And he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky. I am sorry that I have made them. And notice how thorough is man's evil in verse 5. Every intent of the thoughts was only evil continually. Completely thoroughgoing was man's evil. God said, therefore, he's deserving of judgment, wiping out all of mankind. 
And God says here that he was sorry that he has made man. King James James Version translate, he repented that he had made man. This doesn't mean that God changed his mind or that man's sin caught God by surprise. Because we know elsewhere that Jesus Christ was foreordained before the foundation of the world to come and die for our sins. So God knew it was going to happen. But what we have here is an expression of the character of God. Because God is no unmoved mover, as Aristotle called him. He's not a philosophical principle. He's not a Buddha figure who sits up in the sky serenely contemplating his own existence, unmoved and unaffected by what we do or the things that go on in human life and history. Rather, what is being communicated is that God is grieved. He is hurt by our sin. What we do affects him. And this society affected him deeply because it was thoroughly corrupt. And this was a society in which Noah lived, one that was thoroughgoing in its corruption. We must remember that Noah didn't have, like we do, a church that we can come to and be reminded of the way of righteousness. He didn't have Christian friends that he could go to and say, will you pray for me? I'm really feeling pressure from the world. It's really hard to maintain righteous living in the midst of of this kind of, of society. He didn't have that which makes his courage to be different all the the more outstanding. And you know how easy it is to fall into sin if everybody else is doing it. How easy it is for us as Christians to simply judge the standard of what our Christian life should be by looking around and seeing what other Christians do. We think, well, if they do it, it must be okay. It's easy to do that rather than going to the scriptures ourselves and finding out what God says our lives should be. How easy it is for us to let society as a whole dictate to us what our value should be. To let Madison Avenue tell us how how we should make choices in life and where we should spend our money. It's easy to let society's pressures dictate to us how we decide what is right and wrong rather than finding out from God what he has communicated about reality and about values. It's easy for us to listen to society and say, if you feel wrong by somebody, then stand up to them. Tell them off. Demand your rights. If your spouse or your neighbor or your employer doesn't treat you right, don't treat them right. You don't want to be used by somebody. You don't want to be stepped on. Stand up for yourself. How easy it is for us to listen to the voice of society calling to us, do your own thing. You should seek as your number one goal in life your personal fulfillment. Set your heart on what you want to do and go after it. As long as it doesn't hurt anybody, it's okay. And that one qualification, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody, is is expanded so that it allows almost anything. It doesn't hurt anybody if you cheat on your income taxes. It just takes money from the government, and that's not anybody. It doesn't hurt anybody if you steal from a company or corporation or or cheat them, because they're not people. It's not going to hurt anyone. It doesn't hurt anybody if you put in four or five hours of work for eight hours of pay. It won't hurt anybody. 
do your own thing. It won't hurt anybody if you go commit adultery, as long as the cheated spouse doesn't know. In all these various ways, secretly and insidiously, our society tells us to follow its pattern of living, to adopt its values, and it puts pressures upon us. Recently, Billy Graham commented that he's noticed the subtle ways that the world influences him. He says he has seen that he tolerates certain movies and TV shows with crime and violence and sex and blasphemy that he wouldn't have tolerated 10 or 20 years ago. And he said he saw this as a, a breakdown in his own moral values and because of the subtle influences of society around us. Well, Noah was in a society that's as corrupt or even more corrupt than ours. And yet he withstood the pressures of his society. He stood firm like a man standing his ground in the midst of a stream being filled with the waters of melting snow rushing against him. He stood his ground amidst the corruption of his society. He was willing to be different. He was willing not to fit in, not to do the things that were normal and expected of you in the world because everybody else did them. He was a man who had the courage to be different, to do what God wanted him to do in life. We read of this in the next verses, starting in verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. And Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Noah was different. He had the courage to stand out and resist the pressures of his society. It wasn't because he'd had a good upbringing or because he went to the right school. But verse 8 tells us the beginning. He found favor in the eyes of the Lord. He too was a sinner who needed God's grace. He couldn't earn God's acceptance by simply trying to do good in his society. He found favor in the eyes of the Lord. He became a righteous man, verse 9 says. Hebrews 11.5 tells us that he became an heir of the righteousness which is by faith. In other words, he didn't earn a right standing with God by his good living. But rather, he, he turned to God and believed him and trusted God. And God gave him an accepted position, a right standing with him. But then as a result of that, he continued that relationship with God. He became righteous and blameless indeed. And his secret for doing so is found at the end of verse 9. Noah walked with God. He wasn't content merely to enter into a relationship with God, but he took the time necessary to develop that relationship with God, to come and pray and commune with his Maker and bear his heart before God, tell God of his needs, pray to God about the pressures from his society, find out from God what God said should be done and the way life should be lived in, in the midst of a corrupt world. 
took the time to renew his mind so he wouldn't get caught up in following the pattern of his own society. He let his mind be renewed so he could find out what God says was true and how life should be lived. Noah walked with God. And this gave him the resources to be different. This enabled him to have the courage to maintain his faithfulness to God in the midst of a corrupt world. And we too live in a corrupt world, one that's pressuring us subtly to follow its values and its ideals and its, the way that it responds to life and its pressure situations. We see people who live in godless ways and they seem to succeed and we're tempted to follow after them and throw off the restraints that we feel are upon us because of our following God. But Noah is an example to us of one who walked with God even though nobody else did in his generation. Then we see in the next section that he had the courage to be different in a second way. He had the courage to let his lifestyle be ordered and directed by what God said was true about the future. He didn't simply live for the temporary passing pleasures of the moment. God told him there would be a judgment coming. And Noah's lifestyle was radically affected by that. How he used his time, how he used his money, were changed considerably because he believed God and acted upon what God said. Let's read verses 13 to 22 and we'll see this. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. Behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. It would be a substance like tar. This is how you shall make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. A cubit was about 18 inches, so the dimensions of this ark would be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet tall. In other words, it would be uh, one and a half times as long as a football field. Trying to imagine what this would be like the other day, so I went over to uh, Grand Central Station and measured it. And it's, it's about 430 feet long and about 300 feet wide, and it's probably about 25 feet tall. I didn't, couldn't walk up the side of the building, so I wasn't sure exactly how tall it was. But imagine, after you leave the service this morning, drive by the front of that. Or walk over there and walk down the front and look at it. It would be a little bit longer than Grand Central as it wouldn't be nearly as wide, but it would be about twice as tall. And that's the size of the ship that, that Noah and his sons built. And behold, I... Let's see, excuse me, verse 16. And you shall make a window for the ark and finish it to a cubit from the top and set the door of the ark and the side of it and you shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. And behold, I, even I, in bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish, but I will establish my covenant with you, 
And you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds after their kind, and of the animals after their kind, and of every creeping thing of the ground after its kind. Two of every kind shall come to you to keep them alive. And as for you, take for yourselves some of all food which is edible, and gather it to yourself, and it shall be for food for you and for them. Thus Noah did according to all that God had commanded him. So he did. This ark was of an enormous size, and it must have taken years for Noah and his sons to build. Verse uh, 3 may imply that it took 120 years. God said, 120 years longer I will give mankind. 1 Peter 3.20 says that God waited patiently during the days of the construction of the ark, which would seem to imply that, that the length of the time of God's patience was the same length of time of the constructing of the ark. Can you imagine what Noah and his sons must have looked like to his neighbors and friends? building this huge boat. And Noah says there's going to be a flood. Back in chapter 2, we're told there, this is before the fall, we're told there that there was no rain on the earth yet at that point. There were springs coming from the ground, producing rivers to give water, and there was a dew that sat on the ground every evening. And that's how things were, were watered. And possibly it still hadn't started raining. We're not sure. In which case, no, it would be particularly ridiculous, saying it's going to flood and they never even seen rain. Or even if they had seen rain, it would still appear absurd to them that Noah was building this huge ship. Before it started to flood, you could just walk up into the mountains, go up a few feet and, and be above the line of the rushing of water, wherever it would come from. But here were Noah and his sons, year in and year out, working on this huge ship. It must have taken them weeks to, to simply clear enough ground to make a construction site. Then they had to go off into the forest. They didn't have chainsaws, but they had, with their hand tools, had to chop down trees. And then drag those trees without a, a lumber truck, drag them to the construction site, and again with hand tools, chip away at them and carve them, make them into boards. Then they had to rig up some kind of pegs or some devices to, to uh, make them hold together. And then build inside the boat three decks and rooms for all the animals. Then they had to go to, the, uh, to a tar pit and dig up hundreds of gallons of black stitchy, sticky pitch and then carry them over to the, uh, to the ark and paint the whole ark with this pitch inside and out. It must have taken years, probably a hundred years, for Noah and his, friends to, his sons to do this. And you can imagine what his friends and neighbors thought. Noah says, Beware because a flood is coming upon the earth. They say, A flood? Where is it going to come from? And they had plenty of time. 
for parties and playing golf and other things, uh, other leisure activities, and how stupid Noah and his sons appeared because all of their spare time went into building this big boat. They must have come by and mocked and ridiculed him. Said, hey Noah, are you still working on that boat? How are you going to drag it over to the river once you get it finished? And they laughed. And we can imagine that all the local school children took special outings to go see this foolish old man building this big ship. And then they talked and chatted. You know, I heard that Noah and his family aren't even going to have enough money to buy a new color TV set this year. And they're not going to get a new car either. All their money goes into building this big boat. How ridiculous. And on and on, the people mocked him and ridiculed him. And in spite of the fact that he looked foolish to everybody, Noah had the courage to be different, to order his life according to what God had said about what the future held, rather than simply living for the passing pleasures of this world as everybody else was doing. You read on in chapter 7, you find that even after the ship was built, God told Noah to go into the ship, into the ark, and then seven days later, the floods would come. And we can imagine the scene, Noah and his sons, their wives, and Noah's wife, and all the animals going into the ark. And they start waiting. And one of Noah's sons says, Dad, are you sure this is going to happen? I feel awfully silly sitting here and there's no sign of rain or flooding anywhere. And their friends and neighbors coming around and circling the ship. Hey Noah, where's all this rain that you talked about? Hey Noah, what's it like being cooped up in a big box like that with all those animals? What's it smell like in there? And on and on, they mocked and ridiculed him. But God had told Noah what the future held. In spite of how silly he felt before his friends and neighbors, he had the courage to be different and to order his life in accordance with what God says said the future held. What would you do if God told you to spend the rest of your life making a big boat to escape a flood. Would you be willing to do that? Would you be willing to forego the pleasures of passing leisures? Would you be willing to take your time and your money and invest them in this big ship? Have all the neighborhood kids come over and look at you and laugh and mock? Pretty soon they start throwing eggs at the at you at night time, come over and write graffiti on your ship and say how silly you were. Well, probably most of us would say, well, if God told me, if he came to me and told me that a flood was coming and he wanted me to build an ark, certainly I would do it. Well, God has told us something about the future. It's not a flood coming, but he says the earth will be destroyed again. This time not with water, but with fire. What would you do if God told you, in light of the coming disaster by fire, I want you to go and build an asbestos rocket ship in your backyard? 
It'll take you the rest of your life to do it, but I want you to put all the time in it you can to do this. Would you be willing to let all the neighbors start peering over the fence and look at this monstrosity you were building and laugh and, and ridicule you? Would you be willing to cut out your favorite TV shows to spend time on the ship? Well, God hasn't told us to build an asbestos rocket ship, but he has told us what will endure the coming fire. It can be summed up best probably by familiar verse Matthew 6:33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. In other words, we're to seek first God's rule in our hearts and then the extension of his rule, of his kingdom into the hearts of other people. We're to seek to invest our lives and our time in people, reaching out to the non-Christian world and bringing them the saving message of Jesus Christ, reaching out to our brothers and sisters and helping them grow so that they live lives of fuller godliness. We're to invest our lives in righteous living, being faithful to all that God calls us to do in terms of relationships with husbands and wives, parents and children, with neighbors and with employers, to bring all of our actions and our thoughts and our attitudes under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, to live righteously, rather than let ourselves simply indulge ourselves in temporary passing pleasures. This is what God has called us to do. He calls us to be like Noah. Be willing to be different. Now, God's not calling us to simply try to think up ways we can be weird and look stupid to people. But he calls us to be faithful to him, which will mean, in some ways, we will look stupid and weird to people. It will look weird if you invest your time and money other than in passing temporary securities and pleasures. It will look weird if you find your standards for living and your values through the word of God rather than through the word of this age. But God calls us to be different like Noah, to have the courage to withstand the tide of the times, not be conformed to their corruption and lusts. He calls us to be different, like Noah, to have the courage to order our lifestyles according to what he has said the future holds, rather than living for temporary passing pleasures. Let's pray. God in heaven, I feel personally challenged by Noah and what he did, and I'm sure that, that we all do. We feel rebuked, Lord, uh, as we look at ourselves and see that we do gravitate towards comfort and security and self-indulgence in this world. Lord, help us to seek you and to walk with you as Noah did and to find the reality of you in our lives to have our minds renewed so that we can see life from your perspective. Teach us what it means, Father, for us to order our lives in accordance with what you have told us about the future. 
and what it holds for us and for this world. We thank you, Father, that you do love us and you accept us. We thank you that you know our frame and know that we are but dust. We thank you that you do not stand at a distance and impose laws upon us, but you come alongside of us and dwell within us to guide us and lead us and further in paths of righteousness. And we ask that we might experience more of a reality of your leading and of walking with you. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.